You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and I'm joined today by State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District, Hillsdale and Branch Counties. Representative Fink, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Josh. So Michigan made national headlines last Tuesday when a shooting took place at Oxford High School, a suburb of North Detroit. Uh, Four students were killed, seven others wounded. Shooter was 15 years old. His parents had been called to the school for a meeting earlier that same day because of a disturbing, violent drawing that he had made. And the previous day, he had been looking at uh, ammunition on his phone to to buy it, presumably. Um, So they had this meeting. Nobody realized the child had a gun with him at school at the time, so he's allowed to return to class. And just an hour or two later, um, the shooting happened. The kid's being charged. Parents are also being charged because they bought him the gun during Black Friday and gifted it to him, but he's too young to own the gun. So we're hearing some calls out of Washington for gun reform. The state Senate had some discussions during the session on Thursday. What are your reactions to this whole incident and the calls for reform afterwards? Well, you know, it's a frequent reaction to a tragic circumstance for the families and the, the victims themselves, and probably at least a, a somewhat avoidable one. The parents appear to not to have recognized some glaring warning signs. Same thing with the school, where the school, as I understand it, didn't even notify their school resource officer, the police officer assigned to the school, of some of the dangerous indications uh, that this student had presented you know, in the school environment. So it's a frequent response to say, well, now's the time to talk about some sort of gun rights reform. And I think we have two considerations to include here. One is, uh, you know, there's a famous saying, hard cases make bad law. So treating a, an event like this, uh, which has obviously never happened in Oxford schools, remembering that this is uh, about the worst thing that can happen with a firearm, but it's not the normal thing that happens with firearms, I think is is important to do because, again, you don't you don't want to make policy based on the worst thing that can happen without taking into account the full spectrum of things. And in addition to that, there's a reason that we have constitutional rights to keep and bear arms federally and in our state constitution. And it goes far beyond, you know, the circumstances of this case. So I'm not going to turn away from being an advocate for uh, the citizens to have the right to keep and bear arms. It's understandable that people who already don't really, I think, get that, uh, get the concept, think it's a problem, but it would be a mistake, I think, to react without being circumspect. And, and I'm afraid that, you know, circumstances that do raise our blood pressure, that do get our emotions firing like this, uh, sometimes lead us to do that. And it's not usually when you make your best decisions. So what what do you expect to emanate from these discussions of reform in the state legislature? Do you think that there are some bills that might at least get, get to committee? And, and Well, you know, after, the, after that shooting, we did this uh, pretty expansive police appropriations bill trying to support and fund the police across our state at every level with training, recruiting, a huge list of different areas in which um, the men and women to keep us safe need our support. One area that was beefed up uh, the day after the shooting was uh, a significant investment in additional resources for school resource officers. And again, those are police officers who are uh, at least partially assigned to a school I think that's been a program that's proven to be successful in kind of general community police relations. But also, I, I can speak from my experience as a as a prosecutor. You know, sometimes catching bad behavior at its, at an early stage, you know, uh, a high schooler possessing drugs or controlled substances they're not supposed to have, uh, a weapon that they're not supposed to have, and 
uh, in some circumstances, that doesn't prevent a uh, student from eventually turning into a life of crime. In other circumstances, I think it's helped. Uh, I've seen it where even when one student is sort of recalcitrant, to use the, the term that's usually used in juvenile court, uh, other students who are associated with that student do get a wake-up call from it. So that kind of investment, I think, is is responsible, and it, it is responsive to the need to keep students safe in school. I don't I don't expect there to be a bipartisan consensus, which is what you would need to pass a new law, right? Legislatures, Republican de- governors, Democrats. So all legislation in Michigan is bipartisan these days. If it if it becomes a law, I don't necessarily expect there to be an era of good feelings on you know some kind of reform, but would necessarily be some kind of restriction. I I I'm skeptical about that. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, one hundred one point seven FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Andrew Fink with us. Let's talk about that public safety appropriations bill, House Bill 5522, that passed 97 to 3 on Thursday. It's $368 million and includes funds, as we mentioned, for school resource officers, but also to help local departments with recruiting officers, tuition assistance for the police academy, mental health assistance for first responders, state police body cameras, riot gear and body armor, and much more. It's a lot of money, but it has gotten pretty broad support What do you think about what this bill seeks to accomplish besides the school resource officers, which we've just talked about? Well, Josh, I think you and I have talked about this. You know, I was raised in a police family and public safety is really the first, you know, it's the first purpose of government. If you're not, if the government is not able to sort of keep the peace, then it's not really governing. And so having that need as a political society to have a a safe environment in which the rest of us can go about our business and exercise all of our rights and it's fundamental to the government. It's the, it's the basic premise of government. Having a police force that is, for instance, able to feed a family, you know, on, on a single income, let, you know, a police officer work and his or her spouse uh, stay home if that's what makes sense for them. I mean, that's becoming more and more of a challenge in our area, but across the state. In addition to that, I mean, we're at a funding level now in some places where, I mean, I can tell you in Branch County, there are no deputies on the road at night. I mean, after 6 p.m., they're just not, they're not out there. It doesn't mean there's no police. The cities have police officers. The state police are out. But it's not an ideal circumstance for a county of even 45,000 people to have zero of their own deputies on at night. So the crux of the issue is we have to, you know, we need to have a strong police force and show them that they're supported and that they're a respected profession in our state. And we have some gaps there. Many of the things you just talked about, equipment, training, what have you, that's that supports the guys who are there right now. There's also recruiting money. There's also money, for instance, for reimbursing police officers who are forced to take quarantine, sometimes even when they're not sick, uh, but don't have any sick time left uh, and aren't being given it by their departments. I mean, in some cases, I suppose it's because the departments are on a tight budget. We just talked about Branch County. Like, There's not necessarily a whole lot of money free-flowing in these departments. It's not a great situation for police officers who have been required to work through every shutdown, whatever. The police officers are still out there. And uh, and it's not really fair to to tell them, all right, well, you're not allowed to come to work and we're not going to pay you uh, and you don't have any paid sick time, whatever. I think that's that's the basic issue is, you know, we need these guys. We need to support these guys. And there are ways in which we have been failing to do that. And it, it really doesn't speak well of us as a society to not again make it a respected profession where, you know, you can take care of a family, have an entire career uh, at one department. That's just that's something that we should be striving for. And if we're not seeing it, we have to make adjustments for it. So, you know, one of the big things when it comes to police reform that's been talked about in recent years is increased in training and all of that. Do you think that this bill does enough to 
increase the training for police officers in the state? I mean, because it gives some tuition assistance. Is there more that needs to be done, particularly in that area, when it comes to preventing escalation of police encounters and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, it's a complex world that the police that police officers operate in. There's probably always, I mean, I think it's just a continual, you know, it's an iterative process. What's going well, what's not going well is going to be different for every officer, department, part of the state, what have you. Um, so I think the answer is yes, There's it's going to be an ongoing need forever. But I don't really think that that speaks either against this kind of funding uh, or against funding in the future, if that's if that's what really makes a difference. It's not always a matter of funding, I think. I mean, in many cases, I said a moment ago, you know, people staying at a department. I do think that that's something that we want to try to encourage culturally. And that does mean that every department's got to be adequately funded to have the kind of career that a police officer needs to have. But the advantage in police officers staying more or less at one department in their career is that you know, you get to know the cast of characters, you get to know uh, who you can rely on in the community, all of that kind of stuff. And it makes a big difference. If you don't know, even if it's a difficult person, you know, say it's a, a person who's been chronically homeless and uh, you know is has mental health issues or drug issues or whatever, your first encounter with him is, is still going to be more of a challenge than your 10th encounter with him, probably, you know, on, on the average. So I would say that, that that's probably the, the real heart of the issue is just making sure that our police officers are able to kind of have the profession that we want it to be. And that's going to lead to better results in every area. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We have Representative Andrew Fink with us. So House Bills uh, 5261 through 5264 passed last week. They would all amend state law in certain areas with non-opioid directive forms, making them more accessible. These forms, uh, for our listeners, you can fill them out and put them in your medical records if you do not want to be administered an opioid. It's one of the ways people are, are seeking to fight the opioid crisis these bills all passed by large margins, and you voted for three of the four bills. I want you to walk us through that, but briefly I'll start by talking about what each of the bills does. 5261 would create an exception allowing a physician to use an opioid despite a non-opioid directive during surgery. 5263 would require insurers to have a non-opioid directive form available on their website. 64 would require hospitals to make the form available on their websites. The one you voted against, 62, would require insurers to provide a form to their customers upon enrollment. Yeah, so the three I voted for, I think, are, are compatible with the overall goal here, which is to, I mean, it goes without saying, I think, at this point, which is sad, but we have found ourselves in a crisis of addiction to prescription drugs, specifically to opioids. This is an issue that falls at the feet. I mean, I know there's massive litigation about this, but this falls at the feet of the drug manufacturers, falls at the feet of some doctors, not all doctors, but some doctors doctors networks and and whatever and of course it to some degree is a result i shouldn't say it's a result but it, it is related you know there's a correlation to poverty um lack of economic opportunity in some places and people not leaving those places i'm not sure that there's exactly a causal relationship there but there's certainly a correlation you know it's it's heavily and it's a it's a it's a big issue in rural areas that maybe used to be farming communities in the rural midwest uh, or especially in appalachia so it's a serious crisis, and it and it does affect Michigan in a real way. So, having a healthcare economy that is extremely heavy, heavily regulated, when there's a failure like this in a in the healthcare industry, it is partially, almost every time, and I mean, it is partially a governmental f- failure, and that's largely driven by federal policy. But there is still a, a role that the state can play here. So, I think that overall, the idea here was an appropriate response to kind of give people the opportunity to try to avoid opioids as a part of their pain management regime or what have you, even when they are incapacitated. That's the idea of the directive is while I'm asleep, you know, 
you should administer me uh, opioids. There's an override for your, you know, for your family or personal representative or whoever it is that um, it's, it's not set in stone here, but it is an indication of what a patient who can't make a decision at the moment would have made if he or she could. The reason I voted against one of them is because it required putting the non-opioid directive form in with your initial, you know, insurance paperwork when you get a new job or however you get a new insurance plan. And I just think that it's not an effective, I mean, that, that's a, it's an example of making basically a private actor, although again, like let's just recognize the healthcare is extremely mixed, but uh, requiring an additional step at the front end when, you know, you wind up with like 70 something pages of paperwork in the first place. Some people, obviously, some people are going to look through every page of that and, and make a note and maybe, but, but the person who needs to have this form is not your insurer. The person who needs to have it is your doctor. All right. Your insurer doesn't issue you an opioid while you're unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's something your doctor does. So when you get to form from your insurer, if you fill it out and send it to your insurer, that does you almost zero good because the person who you need to get that form to is, is your doctor. Your primary care doctor is your best bet because what you're trying to do is whatever circumstance you're in, whether it's an emergency or whatever, you want that thing in your medical record, which is another one of the bills, right? So I just looked at it as a kind of, getting a little bit outside the real focus of the of the set of bills getting a little outside of of where we could actually make a difference and instead sort of making people you know that that was a little bit of a feel-good bill I think where, where it seemed like we were going above and beyond but I, I think getting above and beyond the actual problem is something that we don't want to do so overall I didn't have a problem with the idea of the package but I thought that particular bill probably was a little outside the scope of what needed to happen as far as getting the word out about these types of directives, how do you think is the best way for the state to go about doing that? Because they've been in law since 2019. This year, we're reinforcing it by making the exception for surgery or requiring different entities to make it public. But how do you think the state should address the fact that most people just don't even know this is an option out there. Well, I do think that actually this package has gotten a fair amount of attention. And I do think that the, the most important person to know about this, you know, for the average patient out there is your primary care doctor. I mean, that's, that's where you get most of your medical advice. Luckily, it is not from the legislature itself or the governor or whatever. Uh, most of us trust the doctors that we actually see and who, you know, see our own health, you know, see our bodies, look down our throats, look, look in our ears, whatever. So that, I, I think that's, that's the real answer is that what, what we're doing here probably helps to, to put it in the mind of, of doctors, but that's always going to be where you get most, you know, doctors or other healthcare professionals is always going to be where you get most of your support, you know, most of your uh, advice about your own health. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We have Representative Andrew Fink. I want to end today talking about a bill that you introduced back in July, and it just got through the House Oversight Committee at the beginning of November, House Bill 5187, it's partner Bill 5188, you're a co-sponsor of. Your bill would amend the Emergency Powers Act, under which the governor can declare a temporary state of disaster, and your bill would explicitly limit the governor's power to, by using executive order, prohibit or regulate anything relating to firearms or ammunition, suspending lawful hunting and fishing, operation of shooting ranges, or sale of firearms and ammunition. Governor Whitmer hadn't tried this after the shooting most recently to to legislate gun control reforms via executive order, but your bill would ensure that she or any future governor couldn't claim that power under state law to do that. And the partner bill would amend public health codes, so any COVID-19 lockdowns or or any other sort of health-related emergency wouldn't be able to affect these activities as well. Could you talk about why you think this legislation is important, necessary, and, and what you see as far as its legislative path forward? 
Well, I think the reason it's necessary or important is, you know, it's a civil, the, the right to keep and bear arms is a civil right granted by our Constitution uh, across the country and also specifically mentioned in the, in the Michigan Constitution. And uh, the danger of, of a out-of-control executive, which we saw last year, uh, is that, you know, Governor Whitmer, you know, abrogated under herself, under herself, the the decision making for how we're going to exercise virtually all of our civil rights. Or in Ohio, you know, we had a governor cancel an election. I mean, people uh, didn't really like that. So I don't really think that it should be necessary. Uh, but I think it is necessary to specifically say, you know, when you have a right like this, um, you you can't disfavor it by letting the governor terminate it. Uh, anytime he or she has declared a state of emergency. And you know, it's, it's, it's related to the issue of the executive claiming the right to, to, to declare a state of emergency, which lasts for however long, you know, she says about any topic she says, um, for any length of time, what have you. I mean, essentially an un, unlimited emergency power, uh, in, in any, in any way, uh, without much, you know, without much feedback, even from the, the legislature, let alone the people themselves. And so when you have a, a civil right that is, uh, you know, that's important enough to list in the Constitution, putting in a, a protection for the, you know, the, the, the ability, you know, the functional ability to exercise that right, to purchase ammunition, to uh, practice your marksmanship, to purchase a firearm, uh, whatever, whatever the specific, you know, whatever the details of it are, um, that's, I think, worthwhile. And it, again, I, I, I kind of wish that it didn't, that the idea didn't occur to us. But unfortunately, that's, you know, that's not where we are. So we have to respond. Do you think that this is going to get enough support to pass the legislature? I mean, I imagine it's not going to get signed by the governor. But, but what do you do? You think? Do you think it might? It has a chance? I, 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 I don't know why um, the legislature would not pass it. You know, I can't think of a of a, knowing what I know about the majorities, right? I, I can't think of a, of a reason why the legislature would not pass it. Um, whether the governor will sign it, to be honest, I don't even think you need to get into the fact that it's a, a gun rights issue. You really just have to look at the, at the issue of it being, you know, uh, some form of limitation on the governor's powers. And uh, she has essentially rejected every version of that. It's it's interesting, you know. the The problem of government is that you you know what you want is a government that is uh, that's and I'm stealing this from President Arn, but that is sufficient but limited, right? And she seems to think, and and this is a temptation. I mean, this is a temptation for anybody in any kind of power. But she seems to think that the limitation should be her judgment, you know. And that's a mark of a bad, you know. That's that's a mark of anti statesmanship. Because that's not creating um, forms that that you know constitute actual limits, but are but it's instead a matter of her own restraint, which I don't trust. But even if I happen to trust hers, what you want is a statesman who recognizes the ways in which all of you know all all government needs to be restrained. Um, you know, it's it's um, it's a total cliche to talk about uh, something like like George Washington, you know could have been a king is a little song that I was taught when I was a, a, a little boy. But I mean, it's worth, it's worth just thinking like, you know, these, the guys who founded our country, um, 
you know, they could have formed a new sort of permanent ruling elite and people accuse, they, they accuse one another of trying to do this all the time. Right. But, the, but the mood at the time and the, what, what they, I think, oh, you know, almost to a man recognized was, um, given that, uh, I don't trust anyone else. I don't really even trust myself. You know, I don't, I don't think it'd be good to give, you know, George Washington recognized as the, uh, as the presumptive president, um, that there were going to be times, uh, in, in which his power is going to be limited by the constitution. Um, and that, that was, a, that was a good thing. So I think that's the, the, the basic problem we have with governor Whitmer is that she, she really doesn't recognize that government is supposed to be formed um, and limited by uh, the the delegation from the people, uh, not unlimited uh, on kind of an idea of of a transfer of all the the political power of the people. I mean the the idea that the citizen is the fundamental element of government is not really apparent in her rhetoric. Uh, that I think is the basic issue, and so it can be about gun rights this time, but it could be about something else another time. She doesn't understand what citizenship is all about. She doesn't understand what living in the American Republic is all about. And as a result, she makes bad decisions about how to form the government. You've been listening to Representative Andrew Fink. Thanks for tuning in to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.